You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and stocks are higher across the board today. The Nasdaq is leading the way once again. Remember, it was the only one to close positive yesterday. It's now having its longest winning streak since December. Take a look at the levels. Uh, we're up 35 nearly 3.6% on the Nasdaq today. The S&P up 2.7%. The Dow up 2.25%. It's just shy of the 24,000 mark right now. Uh, in, the NASDAQ, uh, in the Nasdaq, Tesla, United Airlines, and Fastenal are all leading the way. Uh, So there's the positive tone for stocks that we are seeing this afternoon. It's a different story for oil, though. Check this out. It's back to slumping as the market remains wary that supply cuts can balance out the demand decline. Oil also shrugging off that talk of reopening the economy. The commodity is down almost 7% right now. It continues to move lower throughout the session, and it's back below $21 a barrel for WTI. All of these market moves come as we kick off earnings season with two major banks reporting and some reassuring commentary and moves from Johnson & Johnson. Let's get to all of it with our Bob Bassani. Hi, Bob. And Kelly, powerful rally here. All the right stocks moving, retailers, et cetera, moving. Uh, just let me show you. We're just off the highs today. We moved up around 12 o'clock noon. Governor Cuomo of New York was making some reassuring comments saying uh, hospitalization rates have dropped. So the S&P moved up again. And we're just off of the highs uh, for the day. I want to emphasize Johnson & Johnson, as Kelly mentioned here. I think it's the stock of the day. Not only did they beat... Consumer health, obviously quite strong here. They increased the dividend. They bucked the trend of everybody else. And they gave lower guidance, but they gave guidance. A lot of companies are not giving any guidance. That was certainly a plus for them. You see that stock recovering good part of all the losses recently. Remember, though, a lot of companies have suspended dividends, folks. Boeing, Delta, Darden, Ford, Nordstrom, L Brands, Anheuser-Busch cut it in half today. Uh, you're going to see many more suspending their dividend. And also, you're going to see many withdrawing guidance. Speaking of withdrawing guidance, Roku withdrew the guidance, but they had good numbers here, and they highlighted the new account growth. Guess what? Roku is trading up, even though they suspended their guidance, essentially. That's what I'm talking about. Finally, we've got the banks kicking off the earnings season. The key thing is big reserve bills for future loan losses from J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo. But it wasn't a complete freakout. The stock started up. They're down modestly right now. Not a bad start for earnings season. A lot of bad news priced in, guys. Remember, J.P. Morgan's down almost 30 percent. Back to you. A lot of bad news priced in, Bob. And I agree. I want to just go back to Johnson & Johnson for a minute. I mean... Some might say, look, this stock is unique because it's a health company at a time when that bull market is helped by coronavirus. Do you think that it's more significant, though, that there's something kind of a deeper takeaway from the fact that they were able to issue guidance and raise their dividend? Yes. So the guidance is about 15 percent lower than they had guided previously. I I think that's fairly remarkable. I think that's very good news. And yes, it goes to their strength as a consumer company. And obviously they're benefiting from that. There are aspects of the coronavirus that is benefiting uh, Johnson & Johnson. But look, I I think any company that can get its hands around a full year guidance on a global scale like Johnson & Johnson, that's terrific. I mean, that's a sign they're feeling a little more confident. I'd like to see more companies try to do that. I frankly don't expect it. I think an awful lot of companies are going to simply uh, suspend their guidance. Uh, So in a sense, you get a little bit of a plus uh, uptick because you were actually able to give guidance Uh, even if it's lower than was expected just a month or so ago. That's a great point. Great point. Bob, thanks so much. Bob Bassani. 
Those stocks may be rallying today, but the latest Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey is showing extreme pessimism. The cash levels, they say, are the highest since the terrorist attacks on September 11th. Equity allocation is the lowest since March 2009. Remember, that was the market low. And 93 percent of respondents expect a global recession this year. So are all these contrarian signs? Joining me now with more on the market sentiment is Komal Shrikumar. He is president of Shrikumar Global Strategies. And Michael Cagino is president of the permanent portfolio family of funds. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Shri, I'll begin with you because, again, when you see responses this extreme in, in something like the fund manager survey that are bearish, you tend to think, well, maybe the worst is behind us and it's a contrarian uh, positive sign. Kelly, yeah, at a certain stage, all the negative sentiment being intensely negative uh, becomes a bullish, a bullish uh, signal. But I think in contrast to 2009, in contrast to 9-11, you, I, I believe that the negatives that are there in the Bank of America survey have further to go uh, before it becomes a buy signal. And the reason is that we have a total shutdown of many sectors of the economy in a way we did not have in 9-11. And in some ways, the increase in unemployment, the deterioration in GDP this time are both going to be worse than what we had after 9-11 or in, uh, in the great recession that we had in 2008-2009, which is why I think, yes, it can become a bullish signal at some point in time, but it is not yet the time to call that signal. Okay, Michael Cagino, same question to you. And again, so everybody uh, you know, knows the numbers we're referencing here. Bank of America, Global Fund Manager Survey, cash levels are the highest since uh, 9-11. Equity allocation is the lowest since March of 2009, and that was the market bottom last time around. What do you take from this? Uh, to me, it's somewhat bullish because it's so negative. But I would argue that it is different this time than the other recessions that we had in the last 20 years. Um, but also the measures we've taken are different. The quantitative easing, the Fed backstops, the fiscal stimulus are different this time. I believe the multiplier effect on the money that's getting into the economy now through the fiscal measures in, in conjunction with the broader Fed backstop are going to provide some support. Um, to the economy. And, and so that may cushion the blow. Also, you know, I, I think the markets are starting to forecast what comes next after all this negative news continues to come out. And with that, you know, it's, it's likely we're going to have rolling recoveries. They're going to be diversified geographically by industry group, et cetera. And there is the possibility that maybe things aren't going to be as bad as everybody's forecasting because maybe we won't get to the depths that everybody is predicting. There are reasons to believe that, you know, people are finding a way to work from home, to be distributive processing, to get things done. Uh, companies are going to have decent earnings. Some are going to be able to issue forecasts like J&J. Right. Others will not. But, but net, net, you know, maybe there is uh, a reason for some optimism that things might not be as bad. So uh, I believe there's a lot of risk factors. They're mostly uncertainties right now versus pure negatives. And investors need to be cautious. But I, I think that these signs indicate somewhat yeah. of a bottom bullish factor, contrarian indicator like they typically have. Shri, let me bring you back in on that point. I, I thought that Michael's point that the measures we've taken compared with 09 are much quicker, much more extreme, different in nature perhaps can contribute to a faster rebound or a more vigorous one than we saw back then. I'm curious if you would agree with that. And also just kind of straight up, what would your investment advice be right now? How do you think people should be positioned? Let me take your first point first, Kelly. 
Uh, it is easy to hope and hope that things would be better than it was last time around. But if you look at the developments that are taking place, there is a great story in the Wall Street Journal today talking about how there is a secondary wave of layoffs that are taking place, not only with service employees, blue-collar workers, but also it is extending to white-collar employees who are working from home, because it is that is what I think we did not have in 2009. So that is one more reason why consumption spending is going to stay depressed for a period of time, and the stock market correction is also going to go in waves. In turn, it takes me to answer the second part of your question. What do I advise people to do right now? I would say if you are fully invested, stay in it. There is no point in selling now and figuring out whether it's going to go lower or higher from this stage. But if you have a lot of cash in your portfolio, this is not the time to go in. You probably would get a much better opportunity after all the negatives in the economy get okay. registered in the equity market. Quickly, Michael, the before I let... The problem in equities is that it is still not yet fully discounted, Kelly. Fair enough. And, and let me end with that question to Michael, because the flip side of the negative uh, sentiment in the fund manager survey is the positive sentiment literally today, Michael. Is it overdone? The market's only down 17, 18 uh, percent from its all-time highs. Is there another leg down coming, as Shri suggested? Well, because of the uncertainty, certainly it's possible. I mean, if you look at the market based on trading today, based on discounted earnings at the moment, it looks very overvalued. But I think the market's looking beyond and into the future, which it typically does. Given the current uncertainties, I can't think of a better period of time for investors to have diversified assets in a number of different asset classes, to take the worrying of different asset classes off the table on a day-to-day -day basis and just be balanced out. And I think if you do that, remember, cash is negative after what little inflation we have at the moment. And I think investors can do better than cash. And right. so uh, dollar cost average, we've been doing some of that in our portfolio. Safety and quality on the bond side, we've been doing that as well. A little bit of exposure to precious metals, gold and silver for the uncertainty factor and the alternative currency factor. And I think if you, if you broaden out your, your asset base, I think you'll uh, reduce some downside risk and potentially profit over the long term. Okay. Thank you, guys. Komal Shri Kumar, Michael Cugino, we appreciate it. Good to see you both. Thanks, Thank, you, Thank you. Meanwhile, companies are racing to raise cash amid uncertainty over when the economy will restart, but they're doing so by taking on more debt. Exxon issuing nearly $10 billion in debt, with GE and Walgreens Boots Alliance making similar moves. Disney, meanwhile, secured a $5 billion line of credit with Citibank, which it says may be used to fund day-to-day -day operations. For more on the longer-term uh, implications of these moves, I'm joined by Peter Bookvar. He's chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group and a CNBC contributor. Peter, welcome. I, we were, had talked a little bit about high corporate debt levels going into this downturn. How bad are they going to be on the way out? Well, keep in mind, when a company is going to draw on a credit line, the hope is that, yes, it adds to debt on the liability side, but it provides them with cash on the asset side that will allow them to buy time, buy time to get past this. And the hope is, is that once we get through this, that those credit lines can be paid back and sort of refilled. So it, it, it's, it's, it's the rainy day fund that these companies are tapping into because they didn't have enough cash prior to this. Right. Uh, but I don't think over time it's necessarily going to raise their debt to equity because I think they plan and they hope to pay it back as soon as they can. What would you say is the difference between those companies that are clearly doing this on a temporary basis and the companies that got most in trouble because of coronavirus because they had highly indebted, highly leveraged balance sheets? What's the difference between those two? 
Well, that, that was a key characteristic of this bull market the last 10 years was the explosion in corporate debt and on company balance sheets and how the average credit rating of corporate America just got degraded as the years went on. So the stronger companies are uh, much obviously better able to handle this, not just because of the cash they have on hand, but the revolvers they're tapping, where other companies are doing it sort of, I don't want to say desperation, that's probably too strong, but out of, out of, of fear that they can lose access to uh, the credit markets if things uh, got worse. So it, 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 there's, there are different intentions here, uh, but the same goal is to improve the balance sheet to buy time until we get to the other side of this. Right. So basically, you're trying to differentiate between those companies who are raising cash, even if it's via debt from a position of strength, and those who are doing so from a position of weakness. So, I mean, I hate to name names here, but where would you place Exxon, GE, Walgreens, and Disney? I mean, you know, are, are, are some of those in cl- clearer positions of weakness than others? Well, I, I think those are high-quality balance sheets in the aggregate. It's, it's the, the junkier-rated credits that are doing everything they can to get access to cash, whether that's drawing on a credit line, uh, whether that's pledging an asset that they're borrowing against or selling accounts receivable, whatever they can to, to um, beef up their balance sheet to buy time, whether it's going to be three months, six months, nine months, 12 months. We heard Live Nation on your, on your, uh, earlier mm-hmm. on CBC talk about that they have uh, enough capital to get them through the spring of 2021. That's what this is all about. It, 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 it's, yeah. it's trying to buy yourself time to make it through. And like you're saying, then the, the, the impetus is on all these companies paid on that debt as quickly as they can coming out of this, you know, so they don't trap themselves. So let me ask you finally about this, about the moral hazard created by the Fed, which just said it's going to be buying junk bond ETFs. Are there some companies whose credit access would have been shut off altogether that are going to be able to keep borrowing? And what happens if so? Well, it is a great point. You know, the Fed will tell you that they're just going to buy the fallen angels. So the company that used to be investment grade that has now uh, slipped into the high yield side, the junk side, uh, that has a sort of a ripple effect and has helped sentiment all down the curve. But whereas when times were good, then, you know, companies stayed alive a lot longer than they should have. I think now investors are not going to fund failed business models, and companies that can't generate cash flow to pay their bills. So the Fed can temporarily save companies that should go under. But I think in this cycle, uh, investors are not going to sort of go for that, Mm -hmm. and they're going to be much more uh, careful and discriminating in in financing uh, bad business models. Exactly. Well put. Peter, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Peter Bookvar joining me there. Coming up, governors across the country are teaming up to find safe ways to reopen their economies. But what happens if you open but nobody shows up? We'll get into that. Plus retail in the time of COVID-19. Some staggering new numbers on where and how people are spending and where they aren't. And we'll talk to a hotel owner who was approved for multiple small business government loans. His advice for others and his outlook for his industry, we're back in two. Welcome back. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard saying today that the shutdown is costing the U.S. economy $25 billion a day. Meantime, Chicago Fed President Charles Evans is saying we need a Manhattan project for developing a COVID vaccine. And health expert Anthony Fauci is now saying a May 1 target date for reopening the economy is, quote, overly optimistic. My next guest says these reopening decisions pose difficult ethical, legal and political challenges. I'm joined by Tony Fratto. He's the founding partner at Hamilton Place Strategies and former White House Deputy Press Secretary 
under President George W. Bush, also a CNBC contributor. Tony, it's good to see you. I, you know, I mean, I think the legal issue is probably the most uh, pressing one on everybody's mind because no one wants to open a school or hold an event yeah. and, and get sued for it. Yeah, I think for businesses and institutions, it, it's really where the, uh, you know, the rubber, uh, you know, hits the road for them. I and mean, you could have the president of the United States go out and say, we think it's time to open. That's not going to help you, you know, if someone at your uh, at your facility your restaurant, your business, your school, your church uh, is, you know, suing you because of uh, they think you opened too early and they caught uh, they caught the disease there. And your workers, too. You know, I think these are just really, you know, really challenged, uh, big challenges. Every client that we work with and we even, uh, you know, our business ourselves are, are struggling with this. As I'm sure, you know, CNBC is also that that decision is really consequential. Right. So how do you think it should be made? And I don't just mean, you know, which official is making it. I mean, how much are these decisions going to be left to individual businesses? How much do they need basically, you know, kind of the backup from whoever their local uh, officials are to say, if you, you know, we encourage you to make this decision. If you get in trouble for it, you kind of have our blessing. Yeah. In other words, all of that important signal that says this is an approved move and we want people to come back uh, and, and use your company. It's important. Look, I, I do think the federal guidelines that we're going to get are important. They are going to talk about the kinds of things that business businesses that uh, should do. It's a really big country, though, and the, the virus is moving at a different pace in different places. But that guidance will definitely be helpful. Governors and mayors, they control, you know, stay at home orders and open close orders. They can allow the businesses to open. So that does give uh, you know, some bit of cover to the to the businesses that open it. Uh, but it's going to be on a case by case basis for, you know, for every business to make that decision. What do they feel comfortable with? What do they feel about their company culture? What do they feel about their relationship in their communities with their workers, uh, with their customers? Those are really uh, important. What they're going to have to show them and convince them and use the tools that they have is that the place is safe, that they have the material, they're following right. the protocols that will ensure it. Now, we have seen lots of businesses that have been able to stay open, the essential businesses, you know, the Walmarts and uh, and pharmacies, they've been able to stay open. And there's a lot to learn from the kinds of things that they've been able to do through the, you know, the height of the crisis. So those are good lessons that, you know, businesses are going to be coming uh, forward, going to have to uh, have to deal with. At the end of the day, though, we have individuals and families and employees that are going to make it going to be making those decisions. Right. Do I want to go to work? Do I have a stay at home option? Do I go into the store? What do I need to go into a store? And it sounds like a lot of that is going to be contingent on testing. So if you're a CEO right now, do you need to come up with a plan that says we're going to find a way using vans? We're going to order from Abbott Labs. We're going to get tests for our employees, maybe antibody tests, too, to figure out if you're. You know, yeah. should, does every CEO need to be trying to get that equipment, that testing, the temperature checks, whatever those measures are going to be? Do they need to be thinking about that and having a plan for that? Yeah. Yeah, they need, they need to be thinking about PPE. They also need to be thinking about, uh, you know, the, 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 their workplace, uh, you know, how it's laid out. You know, can you how many people can fit in a conference room anywhere? Can we do a conference room? What do we need for more than, uh, you know, two or three people to be in a conference room? What are our cleaning protocols? How many times a day are we, are we going to clean? All that material that you uh, that you want, you're going to have to spend more money on to make sure that you're doing it right and following those orders. Testing, as you know, as as James Bullard said, 
is, you know, the, the most critical piece here for, you know, getting back and reopening. We just, everybody wants to know that the people around them have been tested and know whether they're clean or not. And, you know, he's right about the expense. I was on a call this morning, though, with a national security expert talking about, you know, just how challenging it is to get to the level of testing that we're going to need to have that, you know, that comfort on reopening. So that is, you know, it's a, a big challenge ahead of us. We should be spending a lot more resources. We'd like to see the federal government spending more resources on testing and labs to make sure we can process those tests more quickly, too, because that's the, you know, until we get a vaccine, which every expert says is, you know, a year away at best, if we're lucky, um, you know, testing uh, is going to have to come uh, much, much sooner. And we have the experience of seeing how other com uh, countries have done that as well. Yeah, absolutely. No, so it's going to be a lot of fascinating moves, like you said. Larry Lindsay even thinks it's going to cause people to have to get paid higher wages to come back to work. So, you know, we, we, those discussions will come, but a lot of interesting challenges for the economy. Tony, thanks. For sure. It's good to see you. We appreciate it. Tony Fratto with Hamilton Police Strategies. Tony. Let's dig a little deeper into this reopening debate. What do governors think would be the best approach to getting these economies humming again? Contessa Brewer has the latest for us. Contessa? Kelly, you know, like many main streets across America, this one in Socrates, New York, is pretty much closed, including the anchor businesses that draw people here, the bookstore, the independent movie theater. So now you have at least 10 governors trying to cobble together their own coalitions on reopening. People need to get back to work. The state needs an economy. We cannot sustain this for a prolonged period of time. Everybody agrees. But everybody will also say how you reopen is everything because of the first point, which is we are now keeping down that rate of infection. The president's expected to announce details of his own task force today. It's causing a bit of a power struggle at this level, you've got business owners telling their local leaders the bureaucracy is getting in the way. Enough with the egos, enough with the bickering. Let's get it together so that we can begin the strategy and the process and the help that our businesses need. Laura Curran says if it were up to her and she had sole deciding power, she would be opening the golf courses today. She would be opening boat ramps and marinas not because they're essential businesses, but because they can open safely. And by the way, that county next to New York City has more cases of coronavirus than the entire state of California, Kelly. Wow, that's a great point. And again, maybe there could be some efforts towards normalcy, uh, some safer places to start. And I'm sure people wouldn't mind the golf course being one of them. Contessa, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Oh, a little exercise, yeah. Exactly, some fresh air. Contessa Brewer, coming up, there may be a shortage of many household products these days, but milk is apparently not one of them. We're going to look at why millions of gallons are being dumped. Plus, an about-face, how the government went from trying to help only the strong to buying some of the weakest assets. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back after this. Welcome back. Let's get to our calls of the day. And we're going to begin with Tesla, which is leading the Nasdaq today. Credit Suisse upgraded it to neutral from underperform, gave it a $580 target. Tesla's at $731 today. Uh, the firm says Tesla has an edge in the transition to electric vehicles with coronavirus disruptions making it difficult for the legacy automakers to make that shift right now. They also think Tesla or note that Tesla has a lead in the battery market, that it's improved its liquidity and shown signs of improvements in its execution. Again, Tesla well above their price target, but still 12 percent higher today. 
pretty significant move. Next up is Zoom, the service we're all becoming more and more familiar with. Cantor uh, moving it to an overweight with a $150 price target, saying that COVID-19 presents significant upside potential for Zoom that's not priced in. They expect upside to current estimates and for the platform and its products to drive increased market penetration and future cross-selling opportunities. Zoom is up nearly 6% today. It's just under $144, about $6 shy of that price target. And finally, Wynn Resorts upgraded by City to Abide they lowered the target, though, to 107 from 140. They say the stock is cheap right now and trading below its historical average. The company shouldn't have liquidity issues, they say, in the near term after raising cash. And wind is up more than 4% today, about $72 a share. Let's get to the very latest in the coronavirus pandemic now. Over to Eric Chemi for those headlines. Eric? Good afternoon, Kelly. Dr. Anthony Fauci says the United States does not yet have the necessary testing and tracing infrastructure set up to reopen the economy. In an interview with the Associated Press, the government's top infectious disease expert called a May 1 target date to reopen, quote, a bit overly optimistic. Fauci expects easing of social distancing rules will need to be implemented on a rolling basis in different parts of the country. Meanwhile, President Trump says he will soon make a decision with state governors on a timeline for reopening the economy. Some governors, including New York's Andrew Cuomo, say they have the power to make those decisions for their states, not the president. As always, for more coronavirus coverage, head to CNBC.com. Kelly, back to you. All right, Eric, thanks very much. Amazon and Walmart hire today, unlike many other retailers who have had to close their doors. The pressure on them has been whether they'd be able to keep up with demand. Courtney Reagan joins me with some new data on how that's going. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Kelly. So while neither Walmart nor Amazon have actually quantified the sales or the traffic, there's a number of other services that are trying to do it for us. So check this out. This is a 1010 data panel of 5 million customer debit and credit card transactions saying that Walmart's online grocery sales in the month of March were up 99% compared to last March. Of course, no pandemic then. And toilet paper, that has become a symbol of consumer hoarding. That is is the number one purchase for Walmart online grocery, no surprise, up from number nine typically, and it makes up 3% of total sales. That's three times larger than normal. Meantime, Rakuten, that tracks online spending through millions of consumer receipts, and that shows us that Amazon's package delays are getting better. So for the week of March 2nd, 15% of Amazon packages were delayed. But for items ordered the week of March 30th, only 0.8% of those items arrived later than planned. Kelly? You know, I have a lot of questions, Courtney. I want to know how their paper towel inventory (laughs) is looking. I I just used Walmart.com for the first time to order uh, some TP. I want to know if Amazon's losing share because I I do wonder and kind of see anecdotally signs of that happening. Uh, What do you think? That's a really tough one, Kelly, and I think all of these supply chains are sort of being strained. I spoke with people that sort of work within both the packaged consumer goods aspect and also the retailer aspect. And if you're a Kimberly Clark, a Unilever, a Procter & Gamble, you want to make sure that all of your typical retail customers have access to what they need. So you don't want to give out all your supply to Walmart, all your supply to Amazon, all your supply to Kroger, whoever it may be. So they're working through all of that, and it's so hard to know, Kelly, spot by spot and where that distribution center that you might be ordering from has their inventory levels the moment that you're looking at it. I know. It turns out it's good to be friends with people in more rural parts of the country because they have fully stocked stores. There's like a whole secondary market. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Courtney, we appreciate it. Totally. Thank you so much.
Courtney Thanks, Reagan with the latest numbers there. Coming up, small business loans are on the way, and many companies are having quite different experiences. We're going to speak with one hotel owner about what it took him to get 19 loans and what's next for the whole industry. Plus, caught in the middle, we'll look at how the jobs market has changed dramatically and quickly for recent college grads and for those waiting in the wings. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's a check on markets about half past the hour today. It's a rally across the board, unlike yesterday when it was only the Nasdaq that closed higher. Today, it's all three averages. We have the Dow and S&P on pace now for their highest close since early March. 2.3% higher for the Dow, 2.8% higher for the S&P, and 3.8% higher for the Nasdaq today. Consumer discretionary, staples, and of course, technology are your leaders overall. Financials are the biggest drag despite some big bank earnings this morning. Apple, Home Depot, J&J, and Raytheon are your Dow winners. Take a look at Amazon. Those shares are hitting an all-time high. Amidst this big market downturn, the stock is up 23%. Of course, we just talked to Courtney about the increase they're seeing in some of their numbers as well. Again, the stock up but just about 6.5% today. Finally, take a look at the banks. J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo, uh, both in the red today. There you can see the declines of nearly 7% uh, for Wells. This after, I'm sorry, for the whole average, J.P. Morgan's down 3.5%. Wells is down 4.3%. But a big takeaway from their reports was the amount of money they're adding to their war chest to deal with declines and with potential defaults. J.P. Morgan adding nearly $7 billion to its reserves. It warned it may need to add more depending on the path of the recovery, while Wells is setting nearly $4 billion aside to cover potential loan losses. These moves uh, led for Wells led to a nearly 90% drop in profits. So again, pressure on both the banks that reported and across the whole sector today. Meanwhile, relief is slowly trickling out to small businesses as those PPP loans begin to roll out. My next guest is a second-generation hotel operator whose business just got approval for more than $2 million in aid loans. For more, let's welcome Nsima Modi, who joins us with guest Azim Saju. He is vice president of H. DG Hotels in Ocala, Florida. Azim, it's great to have you here. Um, were you surprised how quickly you got the funds, and what is your first move uh, going to be to do with them? I was surprised with how quickly Congress got it passed, and you know the president signed off on it. Yes, our first move is going to be to you know bring back our people, increase their hours back to where they were a couple months ago prior to Corona, um, and begin to put them back to work again. That would seem we're hoping we see that across the whole industry. Yeah, exactly. I guess on that point, Azim, the $2.4 million, you said you've, you'll use a lot of that towards payroll uh, and keeping your employees on payroll. But how long will that last? Two to three months? Uh, we're hoping two to three months. And by then, we're in a gradual reopening and seeing the occupancy beginning to pick up, um, resulting from that gradual reopening. And we can wean ourselves off of that government program. You currently uh, manage and own 18 hotels. You have another one uh, that's in construction right now. How have you been able to keep your properties open as you know, most consumers are staying home right now? Uh, it's, it's, it's been a challenge. Uh, we, we believe in positively impacting our people and world around us. And part of that is, is that we want to make sure that our people who feel comfortable still coming to work uh, are able to maintain their livelihoods. Uh, and, and part of that is keeping our businesses open to provide them with that and also provide those first responders and those people who are providing health care in this time of need, uh, patients who are in quarantine, providing them with 
hotel rooms, but we feel that that's an important part of our business and our company's corporate culture. You've said occupancy, though, is down about 25% across all uh, of the 18 hotels. Back to the PPP loan, though, uh, you know, you are one of the few success stories out there. Are there any additional steps that you took uh, that you think made sure that you'd get these funds right away? Uh, we stayed very engaged with all of the major trade associations, the American Hotel and Lodging Association, the Asian American Hotel Association, the International Franchise Association. We have franchisee advisory councils. Our franchisors also provided us with a tremendous amount of knowledge and education on this and just staying engaged and staying on top of it. You've... Uh yeah, you've said that's been a big part of, uh, of your success and getting that $2.4 million loan. What's the biggest risk, though, over the next four weeks as occupancy continues to plunge? Uh, the biggest couple things. One is, you know, those whose hours have been cut and or whom we've not been able to employ, getting them to come back to work and providing them with this environment that they feel safe and comfortable returning to. Uh, the other risk is that, you know, the goal here is, is that the economy gradually begins to open, uh, does so in a manner that's safe and, you know, doesn't promote the continued growth of or the spread of this pandemic. But we are able to open up timely so that the money that we get provided that is not forgivable or not forgiven, we're able to timely pay back and meet our obligations on it. And for that, we need to do business. How important is it that your hotels are able to survive? I know your parents came over in the 1970s from India. They started one hotel, then you and your brother really grew this portfolio to 18. Uh, how much family pride is it attached to, to these properties? A tremendous amount of family pride. We consider our team members a big part of our family also, and uh, we consider it you know, our fiduciary obligation to make sure that they're also getting a livelihood during thick and thin. Um, that's part of our culture. It's part of what our parents have raised us uh, towards as it relates to this business. And my brother and I really, really, really believe in that. And it's very important to us. Great. Azim Saju, I love hearing that story. Hope you guys can get back on your feet uh, real quickly here. Thanks so much for joining us. And Simo, we really appreciate it as well. Sima Modi covering that industry for us. Up next, crying literally over spilled milk. Our Jane Wells with the story of millions and millions of gallons that are being dumped amid coronavirus. Plus, the sad state of affairs for graduating college seniors. They're entering a job market with way fewer jobs right now. The heartbreaking challenge for the class of 2020. Finally, take a look at oil, which continues to sink as we head towards the close next hour. It's right near session lows, back below $21 a barrel, down nearly 7%. We're back in two. Welcome back. Consumer demand for milk is up amid the pandemic, but getting milk to the right store shelves has been a huge challenge for farmers. Jane Wells is live on a dairy farm in Riverdale, California, with more for us. Jane? Hi, uh, Kelly. You know, to the cows, it's COVID, schmovid. They got to be milked. And as the restaurant side of the business has evaporated, demand is now clearly in the grocery stores, especially for liquid milk. But you can't turn an operation around like this on a dime. The product here goes for butter and cheese. And to switch everything over for liquid milk, it takes time. Quote, you can't make a bottling machine out of a butter churner. As a result, last week, about 5% of the U.S. milk supply was dumped. Though most farmers still got paid through their co-ops, 
But those payments are getting lower, and farmers like Donny Rowland don't want to thin the herd yet or milk less. I get paid for milk, so I, I, need to, I still need to supply milk in order for me to pay my bills. And uh, uh, I'm hoping that we, we see a short-term uh, situation here where we get a bounce and we're back up in, in a profitable range. Uh, now, uh, what's happening is the restaurant side has gone away. The grocery side is helping a bit, but it's not enough. So many of the more than 40,000 dairy operations in the country, Kelly, have applied for SBA loans, including this place, which where the jobs here support about two dozen families. Back to you. You know, speaking of getting milk where it's needed, I see the milkman's making a comeback, Jane. Isn't that amazing? It is true. We talk, case in point, Manhattan Milk, I talked to co-owner... Uh, Frank Acosta, they have seen home delivery spike in the last month, which is good because last year, most of their $2 million in revenues went to businesses and schools. That's gone. So, again, home delivery's way up. It's helped, but it hasn't made him whole yet. And so you know, oh, that's a milk joke I just made. <laughs> Jane, we had a milkman growing up, in fact. This was upstate New York, so there were a lot of dairy farms, so it was fairly common. And the guy would come right into our house and stick it in the fridge. I was thinking about that with this new Amazon technology. You know, should you allow someone in your house? I said, oh, wow. we, we did that 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I don't know if you'd let the guy in the house now under any circumstances. But by the way, you should go look, check out Manhattan Milk. Frank Acosta Kelly, he's somewhat famous for his looks. Oh, well, that explains the popularity. I'm trying to... I'm trying to avoid um, a disaster here, by the way. Yes, they have a lot of business to do, uh, and we'll leave it at that. Jane, we appreciate it. Jane Wells with an inside look at how that milk gets to your your refrigerator shelf. Mm. Meantime, there will soon be another 3.5 million entrants into the workforce as students prepare to graduate from universities around the country. So while a lot of companies are facing tough decisions right now about layoffs and furloughs, they also have to decide what to do about new hires. Rahel Solomon is here with the story of new grads caught in this mess. Rahel? Hi, Kelly. So, yeah, graduates are really in a unique position. Many, like Dean Anna Gale of Miami, didn't work many hours because they were in school. So they don't qualify for unemployment or stimulus checks from the government. And some are now finding that their job offers have been rescinded. Delta, United, American, Southwest, and J.P. Morgan just a few of the companies implementing hiring freezes. So Gail finished at Florida International University in December, and she was preparing to move with her sister and her mother to Chevy Chase, Maryland, to begin a management training program at Geico headquarters. Gave up their lease, began searching for a new home in Maryland. She says it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. She was thrilled. That is until she got a call recently that her offer was rescinded. I was in the process of um, communicating with the relocation assistance team, and literally last Wednesday, I got the call right in the morning. I got the call from a a GEICO representative saying, due to the um, coronavirus, they cannot do the onboarding process for new employees. And Kelly Gill says that she turned down two other offers to accept that GEICO position. She says she loves the company. She hopes she can work for GEICO when things return to normal. Meantime, Geico told her that she would have to first apply, although she would be given priority. But this is the situation that a lot of graduates either find themselves in or will soon find themselves in. Kelly. I know. I wonder if they will end up uh, maybe trying to get extra education, 
going abroad. But again, all of the options you'd normally face in a downturn are so different right now because of coronavirus. Everything is at a standstill, so it's hard to know what their plans will be because everything is just sort of in limbo. Right. So tricky. Rahel, thanks. Rahel Solomon with the latest there. Ahead, we hear a lot of talk about whether this will be a V, a U, or an L-shaped recovery. But what if it's not just one letter? My next guest says this is an L, a U, and a V recovery. He'll explain next. As we head to break, here's a look at the Dow 30 heat map today. Uh, Some of the biggest gainers include Johnson & Johnson after raising its dividend this morning. We're back after this. Welcome back. Central banks around the world are taking super aggressive measures to shore up economies during the coronavirus outbreak. According to Morgan Stanley, more than $7 trillion has been added just to central bank balance sheets. How will all of this spending translate into an economic recovery? Joining me now is David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. Dave, nice pad you got there. It's good to see you. Uh, Listen, so I want to start with this idea of an LUV recovery. What does that mean? Well, I mean, there's some L's, there's some U's, and there's some V's. And I think uh, the story what we were putting out in that commentary in particular was that certain parts of the market, the investment-grade parts of the market, are getting a lot of uh, V. Uh, probably the consumer, the small business area is going to be a little more U. And then you have uh, places that are highly leveraged, although they did come through with some pretty good uh, uh, I don't know, programs, if you will, for the high yield area, for the fallen angels and the like, uh, the highly levered parts of the economy are going to suffer a little bit. So that's more of your L. And that was the point of that uh, that note. I mean, to, to, a, to a great extent, though, a lot of the, the stimulus is going to filter back to, mm-hmm. to many mm-hmm. parts of the economy. So even if companies that are levered are left out, if their customers are doing well, then they're going to do well. Well, I want to dig into this idea because it was really interesting. I thought yours was the best analysis I had seen of what the government was trying to do. And then literally the next day, the Fed's like, just kidding, we're buying junk bond ETFs. And I'm, <laughs> I'm curious what you make of that move. You know, they're trying to kind of wave it off as, oh, it's just fallen angels, as if it's not a change in philosophy. But I'm not so sure. Would it have been better to just say we're buying everything because everything needs support? This is a strange time, as opposed to trying to say, because you quoted Yellen, who told Sarah Eisen, we're not yeah. trying to bail out, you know, those highly indebted parts of the economy. And now it seems like maybe they've changed their minds about that. I, I, like, I don't I don't know the answer to your question, but I could speculate that the administration and parts of Congress are pushing the Fed into that direction, uh, even though they probably don't want to. And Kelly, 13-3 lending is really I mean, it's pretty specific on lending to insolvent companies or companies that are close to or teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. And it's just not supposed to happen. So the Fed is skirting very close to the uh, edges of 13-3 lending with that move, particularly into the high yield ETFs, less so with the double Bs that were downgraded from triple Bs. I don't think that's as big of a deal. Right. No, I like this idea that maybe they're feeling some uh, pressure with Congress kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. Hey, we need you guys to do this because it's an important goal for us. Um, You know, why have this combination? And and do you think we're going to get to the point where that line between what the central bank is doing and what Congress is doing seems irrelevant? You know, there's already been research about consolidating these into one sovereign balance sheet, things like that. Granted, this is an unusual kind of response, but is it is it going to linger in that sense? Well, there's a lot of question of how much independence in, in your question, how much independence is the Fed possibly giving up? And they may be giving some up here. And that's 
that's part of the game that they're always going to play with Congress. Uh, they always get more power, but they always lose a little bit more independence because with that power comes the, the sort of the incentive for uh, the folks down the road to try to push them to do something specific that might have political undertones. So the Fed is definitely venturing way, way, way outside of its normal mandate. And this is not just in high yield. Even going to Main Street, you know, you would have never thought back in 08 and 09 that the Fed would be directing lending to specific structures for small business right. and putting that on its balance sheet. Or directly lending, directly lending to municipalities. Wall Street was completely taken out of the municipal uh, bond, uh, the municipal funding facility. They are lending directly to state and local governments under very specific rules. But again, this is this is a Fed that's gone a lot farther than anybody would have contemplated mm -hmm. back in 2009. And uh, I think your question is a valid one. How, how political uh, will this get? And the answer... Uh, probably is pretty political. Very. Yeah. No, that that phrase, more power and less independence, I think is really telling. Last question. There is a lot of uh, talk now about how inflationary some of these moves might be, not just in the sense of the trillions of dollars of balance sheet expansion, but again, the chronic shortages in some cases. Do you have to bid up labor in order to get people back to work, entice them with higher wages and so forth? Um, I know that you're not usually in that camp, so I'm curious if you would give any credence to those ideas, or if you would say to people, no, that, you know, dismiss the idea that this is really going to be inflationary, that it's more the kind of deflationary slowdown we have to worry about. Well, I think, I think uh, Vice Chair Clarida was out yesterday, uh, and he was very specific on his thoughts about this shock in particular, that it is a disinflationary shock. The demand side is far more important than the supply side. So that's the first order effect. Then the question is, what happens afterwards? How quickly do we rebound? And is demand coming back faster or slower than supply. Economists have studied a lot of things uh, associated with a word called hysteresis, mm. which is that, you know, once you beat something up a little bit, it's hard for it to come back. And, and I think that's the way a lot of people will be thinking about the demand side. It's going to be slow. You've had a lot of guests on CNBC today talking about reopening, whether it was the related CEO or others, and, and, and the, the slowness with which with everything is going to come back. I think is going to keep that demand side weaker. And that's a disinflationary story. Kelly. Yeah. And in a way, even if, yeah, even if there's price pressures, that could actually be, be, de yeah. be deflationary, kind of slow, slow things down in that sense. Well, you have to leave it there for now, sir. Yeah. We'll come right. back again. You. you like the backdrop. Dave Zervos of Jeffries. Thank you so much. Uh, our breaking news coverage will continue after this break. Tyler Matheson will be here for Power Lunch. And we'll dive into today's big rally with names like Tesla, Netflix, Apple, Amazon, Johnson & Johnson, and more all surging. What's behind those moves? Plus, the owner of Brooklyn's iconic Junior's Cheesecake will join us. He applied and received money from the PPP program. He'll talk about the process and the road back when we return. Stay with us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.